Hello everyone, welcome back to Point of Insanity Game Studios Geekery in General Podcast. This will be the first episode of 2019. Hopefully 2018 was a good year for you, and if uh, if it wasn't, I apologize, and I certainly hope that 2019 treats you better. If 2018 was a good year for you, I certainly hope 2019 is just as good, if not better. So, today's topic is going to be part two of my look at legendary weapons from around the world. And for this episode, we're going to be taking a look at Ireland. Now, before we begin, just would like to let you know that Irish mythology is something that I have only a passing familiarity with. It's not something that I've got a great deal of experience with. Of course, I do try to be as accurate as I can whenever I do these article these uh these episodes that involve history, mythology, folklore, but like I said I, I it's possible I may miss a few points here and there, but uh, also again the mispronunciation disclaimer is in effect I will probably be doing a fair amount of mispronunciation in this episode. So let's start by taking a look at Irish mythology as a whole. There's four main written sources that comprise most of our knowledge of Irish mythology, and these are called cycles. The first is called the mythological cycle. So these are stories involving a group known as the Tua de Danin, which means children of Danin. Now, according to legend, there were believed to have been several groups of people who tried settling Ireland, and each of them survived a conflict with another race known as the Fomarians. And this race was described as being a race of monstrous giants. And the uh, Tiwa de Danin was just one of these groups that tried settling Ireland. Now they also fought against another group later on called the Furbalug, and then later against a group called the Milesians. The Tua de Danin, however, lost their battle against the Milesians and were forced underground to a place called the Otherworld. However, this Otherworld is not the dark, bleak, dreary place that the Underworld is pictured in in other mythologies such as Finnish mythology or Norse mythology, nor is it the a fiery place of torment that is pictured as in Christianity. But instead, it is believed to be a place of everlasting youth as well as the home of the gods. And it may correspond to Avalon from Arthurian mythology. It is also a place where time moves differently. And as I recall, I've there's occasional legend I've heard about people who were tricked into fairy circles or into this other world, and while they were only gone for what felt like a few minutes, but when they emerged, they found out that hours, months, or even years had passed. Now, depending on the 
author and the source, the Tiwa Daidanin may have been believed to have been gods, fallen angels, ancient kings, or a race of beings with supernatural powers. The Milesians were believed to be the ancestors of the Irish people who were believed to have come from Spain. According to an 11th century work, Labor Gabala Erin, or the Book of the Taking of Ireland, it describes the Milesians as having been descended from one of the chieftains who built the Tower of Babel and eventually migrated northward. Most likely, Labor Gabala Erin was an invention, though, of Christian monks who wanted to connect their land to the Holy Land, as well as create a national epic similar to others that were found in the Mediterranean world. And this is actually is not uncommon. Uh, there are, in other Northern European uh, traditions, we do try to find ways where they try to connect their, you know, their homeland somehow to the Holy Land, or at least the Mediterranean. And perhaps this was done because they wanted to establish a sense of legitimacy and also try to reconcile the native pagan beliefs with the Bible, because there had to be some explanation. Well, you know, if you had the, you know, if you believe the Bible as being true literal, literal history, where, okay, you had all these people that, you know, died in Noah's flood. Well, how did people spring up in other parts of the world? So they had to have found some way to try to connect themselves with uh, the Holy Land for that reason. Now, although it is unlikely that the story of the Milesians and the Tua de Danin existed in the original body of Irish mythology, the battle does fill a specific type of story we see in many other mythologies around the world. And that usually involves a battle between an older generation and a younger generation of either gods or people, usually with the younger generation replacing the older generation. Now, the second of the bodies of work is called the Ulster Cycle. This is a series of heroic legends believed to have taken place during the first century of the Common Era. And many of these tales involve a well-known hero named Q-Q-Lane. Next, there is the Fenian Cycle. This was believed to have take, taken place during the 3rd century of the Common Era. And many of these stories involve a character known as Finn McCool and a band of warriors called the Fianna. And this band's duty was to protect the High King. Now, the fourth cycle is called the Cycles of the Kings. And this is where we see a transition from mythology to history. Irish kings would sometimes hire poets to write stories about their families. Sometimes the authors would embellish their deeds to appease their patrons by blending the family lines of these kings with, mytho with great heroes and adding in mythological elements. One theory is that these cycles were recorded by monks who may have wanted to preserve 
native pagan traditions and folklore, but didn't want to come off as betraying their Christian religion. So they adopted a practice called ehurism. And this is, involves rationalizing that pagan gods were actually ancient heroes and kings whose deeds were changed and exaggerated over time to make them gods. This practice is named after an ancient Greek philosopher named Ehiromos. We see a parallel in Norse mythology with the poet Snorri Sturluson. He is the author of a book called The Prose Edda. Now, he wrote that the Norse gods were actually descended from a person named Asathor, who was involved in the Battle of Troy, but after the battle, he escaped Troy and eventually made his way up north. And again, his family became uh, these godlike figures to the Norse. Now, often this was done as a way for scholars and writers to preserve older traditions without attracting the wrath of the church. And in the case of the Irish monks, they may have been able to get away with it because many of the tales they recorded were more about heroes and kings as opposed to gods. So while we might look back and see this practice of, again, rationalizing that ancient gods were actually just ancient kings and heroes whose uh, deeds were exaggerated and given mythical status, we might look at that as being disrespectful. But I guess in a way, we have to kind of understand the time in which works like the Prose Edda uh, were written. And in a way, it's actually good that they did this because it did allow them to preserve some knowledge and traditions that may have otherwise been lost. So we'll take a look at some weapons from Irish mythology in just a moment. Welcome to Bone Thrower's Theater. Nah, it's not that kind of show. It's an RPG actual play podcast. My name is Jordan, and I'm joined by our fun-loving cast. This is Aaron. Jeff here. Johnny is my name. And I'm Jeremy. And what we do is dive in and play various tabletop RPG systems and games, such as Mini 6, Fiasco, Inspectors, Monster of the Week, Fate, and more. But no matter the rule set or setting, some pretty intense storytelling hits the fan. So whether you like epic fantasy, adventure, comedy, sci-fi, horror, or just horrifically bad puns, we've got something to feast your imagination on. Listen to our full episodes and more at BoneThrowersTheater.com. And may the bones fall ever in your favor. And we're back. So the first weapon I'd like to talk about is a sword called Kalad Bolg. And this was a sword of a king of Ulster named Fergus Mac Roish. It's described as a great sword. So I guess if we're going to translate this into Dungeons and Dragons or your average fantasy role-playing game, I would probably stat it out as a two-handed sword. Though this would probably be a bit of an anachronism, though, because as far as I know, dedicated two-handed swords didn't exist 
until quite a bit later. So I, I might be wrong on this, but I don't think they were really around in Ireland uh, at the time that the Ulster cycles were written and recorded. It's an interesting sword because it did seem to have some uh, unusual powers. The first is that when swung as an arc, it would leave a rainbow. It was also said that this sword had the power to slaughter an army and could even cut the tops off of hills. So I could see some interesting things we could do with this weapon uh, because of, you know, with the rainbow arc that's created when you swing, I could see giving it a power where those who are watching the person use the sword but not actively engaging the wielder could be forced to make the appropriate saving throw or be put under the effect of the rainbow pattern spell. Another possibility I could see is that a critical hit could trigger an effect similar to the color spray spell. I don't think I would give it anything like with the prismatic wall uh, or prismatic spray because, yeah, you'd have to be really careful because, again, those are higher level spells, pretty powerful. And while the, they would fit with the the rainbow motif, motif, I think that it would be a little too much uh, for the sword considering that it also has uh, another power, and which I'll talk about in just a moment. Um, another possibility I could see is as you're swinging the sword around and it's creating this rainbow effect, I could see that as giving the user a defensive bonus, an armor class bonus, when used in situations of low light, or against, specifically against creatures who are sensitive to bright light, because the sword would be creating you know, all this light that would maybe not necessarily blind any enemies, but would make it more difficult for them to function in battle. Well, the more powerful aspect of the sword is, again, the cutting off of the hilltops and being able to slaughter an entire enemy army. So the best I could think of for this would probably be giving it the ability to cast an earthquake spell. Because again, that's that can be a pretty powerful spell. Uh, I know that it has the capability to cause a lot of damage to fortresses. That's about the best I could think, though, when we're talking about something that can cut the top off of hills. So in that regard, I think Earthquake would be a fitting power for it. And again, since it the sword was supposed to be able to slaughter an entire enemy army, an Earthquake could easily do that as well. Well, next we're going to talk about QQ Lane. And there's a couple of weapons that were associated with him. But first, let's talk a little bit about this particular hero. He was originally named Satanta, and it was prophesied that he would live a short but glorious life. He got the name Kukulain after he killed the dog of a blacksmith named Kulain, and he offered to take the dog's place until a replacement could be found. And that's why he became known as Kukulain, which means the Hound of Kulain. Some people have also called him the Incredible Hulk of Irish mythology, because he could enter a berserker-like state, 
And it was said that during this time, not only did he get really big and his muscles swell up, but he also got this really intense look on his face where one of his eyes would kind of bulge out a bit and the other would kind of sink back in. I don't remember if there were any depictions of him frothing at the mouth, but uh, like I said, probably not the kind of person you want to fight with when he was in that state. When he was in this berserker-like rage, it was said the only way to snap him out was to have women expose their breasts to him and then having him submerged in water to cool him down. Now, during his last battle, he was mortally wounded by a magic spear. But he wanted to die fighting, of course, so he tied himself to a standing stone so he could die on his feet. And it was said that his enemies were afraid to approach him even in this state. And they only approached him when they knew he was dead because a raven had landed on his body. The first and probably more well-known of weapons associated with Kukulain is Gay Bulg, which means something to the effect of Spear of Mortal Pain. Kukulain was trained with this weapon by a goddess named Skaha. And it was said to be have been made from the bones of a sea monster. When the spear penetrates its opponent, barbs spring from the head of the blade. Now, it seems that this weapon may have been one of last resort, as it was said that once the spear has entered an opponent's body, the only way to free it was you'd have to uh, cut, cut it out of the body. Now, according to one work, the Book of Leinster, the gale bulb had to be made ready for use on a stream and cast from the fork of the toes. It entered a man's body with a single wound, like a javelin, then opened up into 30 barbs. Only by cutting away the flesh could it be taken from that man's body. Now, there's also another version of the spear that said rather it had seven barbed heads. Now, the whole part about throwing from the fork of the toes, so it seems that in order to do this, you had to somehow throw it with your legs, so probably while lying on the ground. So, how would we stat this out for D&D? I would give it a pretty good bonus, at least a plus three, maybe a plus four. Now, it seems that its most dangerous property was when it was thrown. So, I would only have the whole barbed heads aspect of the weapon activate when the weapon is thrown, so you could use it in melee like a normal spear. So, I would say that when thrown in that, that way from, with your legs, that it should inflict significantly more damage, maybe triple the damage of a normal spear, and again, if you get that critical hit, then the, you know, the barbs would spring out and it could have an effect similar to like a sort of wounding where the wounds would not heal and the person who was stuck with the spear would slowly bleed out to death. I would also consider giving it a bonus against aquatic creatures since it was made from the bones of a sea monster. Now, I know this weapon has appeared in... Uh, the Legends and Lore books, which actually I've got one right over to my uh, side over here, so just a moment. Okay, so according to the second edition Legends and Lore book, they stat the spear as being made from the bones of a sea dragon, 
he's the only mortal that can use it. And while in his hands, he can't be surprised. So not sure where that came from. They do stat it as a plus four spear and says that it glows with a brilliant light. And those attempting to fight him cannot look directly at it or they suffer a penalty to their attack rolls. So I suppose that would work, but I'm not, like I said, I'm not sure where the whole light part comes from. Uh, they're just, like I said, there maybe there's a legend that does uh, describe that power, but I mean, I would certainly give it to a damage bonus against uh, sea monsters since it was made from, or sea creatures since it was made from the bones of a sea monster. The second weapon that was said to have been used by Kukulain is a sword called Fregara, which means the Answerer. This sword was believed to have belonged to Manaman MacLear, the god of the sea, who also served as a bit of a psychopomp as he would ferry souls to the other world. It's said that this sword could command the winds, and if it was held at an opponent, the target could not tell a lie or move. It also would inflict wounds that would not heal. So as far as how we would stat it out, I would definitely give it the properties of a sort of wounding. Now, as far as the part about it being able to force someone to tell the truth, I would think that you could use your action to point it at someone's throat, and if they fail their saving throw, again, they're, they're under the effects of a hold person. So they can't move, and again, like as if they were wearing a ring of truth, they cannot tell any lies. Now, as far as what to do with the, the wind properties, I think you can have some fun with that one. There are some abilities I would definitely give it. Um, I would say if the sword is drawn and held in the hand, it should give the user the properties of a ring of featherfall. I think it would also be reasonable to allow it to cast gust of wind a couple times a day. Control weather would not be unreasonable. I would maybe give that one only once a day or once every few days, and specifically just the wind. So being able to change the direction of the wind or uh, increase or decrease the strength of a wind would be reasonable. Summoning rain or making the clouds part so it's sunny, that, not so much. I would also give it the ability of fog cloud, because according to legend, Manaman McLear could summon fog to make himself invisible and to hide himself from his enemies. Next is Luin of Kelchar. This is believed to have been one of the four treasures that the Tua de Dianan had brought to Ireland. Now, this is a spear that appears in the Ulster Cycle, and it was used by several different heroes. It's described as a fiery lance and it could be just as dangerous to the wielder as to his enemies. So we do have some descriptions from Irish literature. First, from Togail Brudin da Derga, which means destruction of the hostel of da Derga. A spy reports, The man in the center had a great lance, with fifty rivets through it, and its shaft would be a load for a team of oxen. He brandished the lance until sparks as big as eggs all but flew from it, and then he struck the butt against his palm three times. 
Before them was a great food cauldron, large enough for a bullock, with an appalling dark liquid in it. The man dipped the lance into the liquid. If not, the lance was not quenched quickly. It blazed up over its shaft. You would have thought there was a roaring fire in the upper part of the house. Another description. And the lance was in the hand of Dubtok. It was the Lewin of Kelcher, son of Uthakar, that was found at the battle of Mag Turid. Whenever the blood of enemies is about to flow from the lance, a cauldron full of venom is required to quench it. Otherwise, the lance will blaze up in the fist of the man carrying it, and it will pierce him or the lord of the royal house. Each thrust of this lance will kill a man, even if it does not reach him. If the lance is cast, it will kill nine men, and there will be a king or royal heir or plundering chieftain in their number. I swear by what my people swear by, the Lewin of Calcher will serve drinks of death to a multitude tonight. And then finally, in Mesca Ulad, the intoxication of the Ulstermen, a great warrior, his spear reaches to the height of his shoulder. When its spear heat seizes it, he strikes with the butt of the great spear across the palm, so that the fill of a sack measured of fiery tinder sparks bursts out over its blade and over its tip. When its spear heat takes hold of it, before him there is a cauldron of black blood, of dreadful liquid, prepared by night by his sorcery from the blood of dogs and cats and druids, in order that the head of the spear might be dipped into that poisonous liquid when spear heat comes to it. It's kind of a cool name, spear heat. So the spear was also, though, responsible for the deaths of one of its owners, who it takes the name from, uh, Kelcher. One of his dogs had become a threat to the cattle of Ulster, so Kelcher is forced to kill it. The dog had poisonous blood, and it was said that after lifting the spear, the blood drift on, dripped onto his hand and killed him. It's also believed that the spear may have also been used by the god hero Lu, from whence comes the name of a festival called Lunasad. So I think there's a couple of different ways we could stat out this spear. If you wanted to keep it simple and possibly less dangerous, I would just give it the properties of a flaming sword, where it's normally a plus one, but when you command it to light on fire, it gets a different bonus against avians, undead, and creatures that are weak against heat and fire. Now, one of the things that I think would be problematic about this weapon is how they do talk about how the spearhead needs to be kept in this pot or this cauldron of this vile liquid. So it wouldn't necessarily be a weapon that you, if you're going to use that part of the legend anyway, it wouldn't be the kind of spear that you would probably keep or take with you if you're going out on a long adventure. Because again, you'd have to find some way to have this, you know, this pot or this cauldron of blood or this vile liquid to keep it in there. That's why I think it probably would be best to stat it out as just a flaming sword. However, 
You could also make it that maybe normally it's just a has the effects of a flaming sword, but when you do dip it in this poisonous fluid, that it would get more powerful because again it seems that it has the ability when thrown. Maybe it can go through multiple targets. Uh, also, again, it seems to also have some sort of curse on it because again, remember we do have that story where the Kelcher. Uh, uh, he was killed by the spear because uh, some poison blood had dripped from the spear and landed on him. And also, again, remember, it did say that if the, that spearhead isn't quenched, that the spear could be just as dangerous to the, the person using it. So this would definitely be one of those weapons you'd have to be very careful with if you wanted to really give it a lot of power. But then again, that also would serve as a good uh, game balance aspect of the weapon well next we have and i'm going to totally mangle this pronunciation clema solis which fortunately translates to something fairly easy to say sword of light or shining sword so i'm just going to call it that for the, the rest of this section this is another one of the four treasures of the tua de Danin. Similar weapons exist in various legends from across Ireland and Scotland, so this probably wasn't a specific sword, but rather a type of sword that they would use in different tales. Often, the hero would have to go through several trials in order to get the Sword of Light. Normally, it was guarded by a giant or a fearsome magical creature like a hag. Usually, the Guardian was impervious to normal weapons, and often had to be defeated by attacking a specific weak spot. Also, the hero would usually need advice from a woman in order to succeed in killing this Guardian. One version of the sword was used by a king named Nuada, who led his people in battle against the Fir Balg, or the Fir Balg. Before the battle, both sides inspected each other's troops and weapons to make sure that this would be a fair fight. Now, although the Tua de Danin won the battle, Nuada lost either his hand or part of his arm, and he had to step down as the king because, according tradition, to tradition, the king had to be physically perfect. Later, though, Nuada would get a new arm made of silver. Now, another reason that he had to step down is because it seems that he may have had some sort of role as a, a justice god or a justice bringer, and if he lost one of his hands, he couldn't be even-handed. Now, as far as its powers, it was said that once drawn, no opponent could escape it. So, I could see one aspect of this weapon being that when the user draws his sword, and choosing an opponent, that opponent would need to make the appropriate saving throw. Failure means he must fight until either he or the person wielding the Sword of Light are dead. However, I would say that this would need to apply both ways. So even if the one wielding the sword is about to die, or if he notices an ally in trouble, or if he notices his allies flee, he cannot run. Again, he would have to say, that he would have to stay and fight. 
And I would even say that not even magic should be able to break this power. So not even a dispel magic or a wish even. Now, standing it as a sunblade, though, wouldn't be too out of place. Because again, it does. it is called the Sword of Light or the Shining Sword. And I couldn't really find anything about specifically about this sword being made to destroy undead. But again, since it does have that uh, connotation of light, giving it the abilities of that type of sword, I don't think would be really out of place. However, I could see introducing it as a weapon meant to slay a specific or very powerful enemy. Because again, as mentioned before, according to some variations of this legend, it had to be used to defeat a certain type of monster or a powerful opponent. And usually you had to find just the right weak spot in order to uh, defeat the, that opponent. So it might be a good weapon to introduce as just a short-term weapon in your campaign. Well, finally, there is the spear of a warrior named Finn McCool. Now, I couldn't find if the spear had a specific name to it. Uh, the Before we I talk about the weapon, though, I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, this particular hero, as I do actually really like the story behind him. Back when I was younger, my parents uh, got a series of books for my sister and I called Childcraft. And each book had different themes. Like I know there was one about plants. There was one about bugs. Uh, there was one about different types of animals and sea creatures. And you got it as like a monthly subscription. The one that I remember most was called Myths and Legends. Now I remember the box that the book came in because it had a line drawing on the outside of two warriors fighting against a dragon. And later after reading the book, I would find that that picture was used in the story of Beowulf and Wiglaf as they were fighting a dragon. So there were some stories in there I was familiar with. Uh, there was the story of Theseus, uh, the story of Perseus. I also know they had uh, the story of Hercules and the Hydra. But one of my favorite stories in there was Finn McCool. So this is the version I heard of the story, so I'm not sure how many other variations there are of it. And I, when I was in my band in college, uh, I was so ins I remember this story having such an impact on me. Even then, later on, I decided to write a song about it for my band. We did make a recording of it, uh, just with a boombox in the basement, so the quality was pretty bad. I attempted to sing it. It was, nah, let's just say that my singing was pretty terrible on it, so don't ask to hear it. <laughs> but anyways, so the story of Finn McCool goes that he was part of a clan that was in conflict with another clan. And when his mother was pregnant with him, his clan had fought their rival and they had lost. So she was forced to uh, leave and forced her to escape. Well, she went to live with uh, her sisters, one of which was a warrior, the other was a druidess, and uh, they would raise uh, Finn. Now, growing up, the only playmates he had were the, the animals of the forest. So it was said that he would, he learned how to swim from fish and like a, a rabbits, he learned how to dodge and dart around and 
In addition to that, he also learned how to run and jump from the deer. So he grew up being a very fast and strong and athletic child. Well, eventually he moved on because he knew he would have to, he wanted to avenge his family. So he went to stay with a sage poet named Fingus. And Fingus lived by a, a creek. And one day Finn asked why he lived by, you know, such a, a small creek when there were better places to live. And uh, Fingus replied that this was the creek or the stream that the was home to the salmon of all knowledge. And it was said whoever ate the salmon would gain the knowledge of the universe. Well, one day he catches the salmon and he asks Finn to cook it for him, but not to eat it. So while Finn is cooking the fish, he uh, checks to see if it's done, puts his thumb on it, and he burns his thumb. So instinctively, he puts his thumb in his mouth, and that's where he gets a little taste of this knowledge. Well, he takes it to Fingus and admits that he didn't eat it, but he did put his thumb on it because he was you know, checking to see if it was done, and he burned himself. Well, that's where Fingus reveals that he was only destined to catch it, but Finn is actually the one who was destined to actually eat the fish. So as he ate it, he found himself learning the secrets of nature, you know, why the stars shine, why the wind blows, and anything you could possibly want to know. So we have a, a very idealized hero here, one who's not only very strong and athletic and a good fighter, but also very wise as well. Well, he goes to the city of Tara, where the High King dwells, and it's said that on Halloween, a demon named Island would come and would burn the city to the ground. And it was, I think some variations of the story said that he did this every year. Finn, he decided that he would fight this, uh, this demon, or in some uh, versions of the story, they say that he's actually a fairy, which we'll talk about in just a moment. Now, one of the reasons that Eileen the Burner was so dangerous is that he would put men to sleep by playing a song with a harp. So he wasn't sure how he was going to fight this demon, and he encountered an old ally of his father's who gave him a magic spear. Now, I don't remember the name of the spear. It may have been called the Dart of Death, but I'm not sure. That might actually be from another legend in the book. But uh, the spear had a, a bag over its head. And the friend advised him that when he started to feel sleepy to take the bag off of the head of the spear and that would keep him awake. So as Finn is walking through the forest, he hears this beautiful music and he starts to fall asleep. So there's again, there's a couple different variations of the story. The version I heard is that he takes the, the bag off the head and the, the spearhead unleashes this horrible smell and that keeps him awake though i was reading there in, in some variations of the story they say that the the spear's head was extremely hot and you know that he pressed it against himself and the pain kept him awake well eventually he found alan or aileen and the the he cast a spell to set the city ablaze. But since 
Of course, uh, Finn had the knowledge of the the universe. He knew how to, to counter that spell, so he raised his hand and stopped the spell. Well, of course, the, the Ailin was afraid and tried to run away. But, of course, he can't fool someone who has been trained to dodge by rabbits. So Finn threw the spear at him and killed him and saved the city. And as a result was uh, awarded the captainship of the Fianna, which was a group of warriors that protected the High King. And there, I'm sure there's a lot of other stories because remember the uh, the Fenian cycle is the one that details the the legends of Finn and his warriors. Unfortunately, I haven't read the entire cycle, so that's pretty much just the story that I remember. And again, it stuck with me through all these years. So, how might we stat out Finn McCool's spear? First, I would have it grant the wielder immunity to sleep and charm spells. Now, how you'd want to work this depends, I guess, on which variation of the legend you want. Now, if you want to use the version where the spear just releases this horrible smell, I would say that the spear would not only keep the user awake, but would also nullify any sleep spells for anyone around the character as well. This would make it a little harder, though, to sneak around, so you would also want to make sure that the person who used the spear noted that he'd have to put a leather bag over the head to prevent the the smell, which, again, could give you away your position if you were trying to hunt or if you were trying to sneak up on an enemy. Now, the other variation is that it kept him awake because the spear's head was very hot, so he pressed it against his bare skin, and the pain kept him awake. So I, the way I would work with that version is, again, the character would have to touch bare skin, and he would take some damage, but again, that would grant him immunity to sleep and charm spells. Now, if you do use that interpretation, though, I would suggest that you, you, of course, you take some damage. You could use a ring of fire resistance, but since that would nullify the damage, you wouldn't get the benefit as well. So it's going to be kind of a trade-off. You'd have to take eh, maybe 1d4 or 1d6 points of damage, but for a time, you'll be immune to those spells. I would also, if you are using the variation where the head spear, the, the head of the spear is very hot, I would maybe give it another ability where it prevents uh, regeneration. You know, kind of. So it could be helpful if you're fighting trolls, vampires, or anything that regenerates. Now, the final ability I would give it is I would give it a bonus against fey creatures and extraplanar creatures. Now, I seem to recall. In the version I read, I'm pretty sure that they described Island the Burner as a demon. But I also there were other sources that were saying he was a fairy. Now that might seem unusual because, well, at least in Dungeons and Dragons, we're used to picturing most fey creatures as being maybe sometimes a bit mischievous but not necessarily malevolent and generally not evil. But in Irish and Scottish folklore, fey creatures weren't always the, you know, again, weren't always these uh, 
kind, friendly creatures that we know them as. And they could sometimes be evil. So there you have it. A look at some weapons from Irish mythology. So I'd like to thank you for listening. And again, hopefully 2019 will be a great year for you. And have a good evening or morning or afternoon. Whatever it is, wherever you are. And happy gaming. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at POI Game Studio.